The following audio content is a talk given at The Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. Allow me to introduce myself to you now. My name is Ryan Church. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at UPC and am part of this team that we call University Ministries that has the incredible privilege of getting to hang out with you guys. And before we get started, I just have two more invitations that I want to give to you. First would be that if you, uh, I want to invite you to worship here with us on Sundays here at UPC. If you grew up in the church and things like organs, robes, and stained glass are kind of your thing, uh, we invite you to come and join us in the morning, 8.30. Are any college students up at 8.30 on Sunday? Anyone? All right, right there. Way to go. 8.30, you can uh, come and hang out with us in service. 8.30, 10, 11.30. Or if kind of a more casual, you know, jeans, candles, and guitars is your thing, we invite you to join us in the evening, 5, and especially 7 p.m. That's going to have a feel that will be a little bit more like this. You'll see some familiar faces up front. So come and join us right here. Our sanctuary is just off of 15th in this same building, so come and join us. Second invitation, and perhaps, no, not perhaps, unquestionably the more important one, is the invitation for you this year. I urge you to make this year about exploring Jesus. Whether you have called yourself a Christian and have made that commitment long ago, explore what a deeper relationship with Jesus might look like this year. Take the opportunity to do that. And for those of you that are sitting here, perhaps you haven't made that commitment and perhaps this is the first time you've even explored it. By all means, do it. Explore Jesus. Make good on this invitation to explore Jesus wherever you may be in your faith journey. And I'm very confident that wherever you lie on that continuum, that this is a place that you will find a place to plug in and belong. Now, as we continue, let me tell you a little bit more about me and who I am. Um, I left a small town on the Olympic Peninsula around, around about the, the, the mid-90s and came over here and quickly discovered that I was uh, considered to be one sexy, sexy man, for sure. Okay, I know, I know that it's, uh, it's a bit of a grainy photo, and, and the, the first thing, the only thing really that you can notice is that there's a lot of hair in that picture. And yes, that's, you can also make out that I have a part with glasses, but the thing you need to know about the mid-90s is that that was what we might call very desirable back then. And so, you know, if you add to it the fact that it's hard to tell in this grainy picture because it was taken so long ago, that, that I, you know, I was actually wearing some Gryffindor colors there with some circular glasses that I quickly took on a likeness of one Harry Potter, but I'm always quick to point out that I am uh, far more attractive than Daniel Ratliff uh, ever was. So the comparisons really end there. So as a, as a freshman coming over here, I had grown up in the church, and I had spent time going to, going to youth group, and I believed in God, and I had heard about Jesus. But there was something that didn't quite connect until round about the middle of my sophomore year as I had been investing here 
and this community invested back in me, I started to wrestle with this question. If if I'm going to say that I believe, if I'm going to call myself a Christian, then what in the world does that mean? Because I think it might have implications for my life, not just on Sundays. So over this time, I had worked through some of these big questions and some of the doubts that I had and began to discover that maybe this relationship with the God revealed in Jesus Christ might actually be more dynamic and more exciting than what I ever thought the religious life could ever be. It was, it was in my undergraduate experience that I, uh, that I made this major discovery, that, that I grew in, in big ways, spiritually, emotionally, uh, and intellectually, of course. All that to say, I loved college. Not in the kind of Asher Roth, that party last night was awfully crazy type of sense. <laughs> but in the sense that it was, a, it was an incredible experience and an incredible time of exploration and growth in my own life. And it is unquestionably one of the things that fuels my passion as a college pastor today. So this fall, what I want to do is this series that we're calling Doubters Anonymous. In some ways, it is a return to those questions and doubts that I had to work through in my own faith as a college student. While I wasn't necessarily questioning the existence of God throughout those, those, that time, I was skeptical about the reality of the role that God played in my life. Does having a relationship with God really make a difference? Why is it that when I pray, sometimes I feel like I'm talking to a wall? Does God really call people? What is this whole thing about God's timing and why am I supposed to seek it? Those are the types of doubts that I want to take on this quarter. What is God up to in the world and how do we engage the way that we doubt that that might be real? So what I'm not going to do this quarter is give you uh, some sort of, of systematic reasoning and a bunch of proofs for the existence of God. But what we are going to do is bring the ways that we are confused, the, the ways that we are disappointed, maybe even the ways that we feel lonely in our spiritual lives and in relationship to God. Let's bring those doubts as we journey uh, together And my overarching belief is that those who call ourselves Christians, we continue to have doubts. We continue to question, and that's okay. We're going to bring these doubts to the fore uh, together as we journey uh, through fall quarter. Now, part of what happened in the middle of my sophomore year was that I discovered that this thing that we call the Christian faith is actually rather risky. Well, how is it risky? Because we believe some pretty amazing and mind-blowing things. Our faith is, is founded on some stuff that you just go, really? Okay? And so what I want to do is, is just kind of recite some of, of what those things are that you might remember what it is that we put our faith in. We we have our faith in a, not only the existence of God, but in a God that created the heavens and the earth. 
We have faith in a God that is large and in charge. We have a faith in a God that scripture tells us is actually in relationship with his creation. We have a faith that says that Christmas is real. That this God revealed God's self as a baby. Isn't that mind-blowing? That's what our faith is in. But it doesn't stop there. Our faith is in Easter. That this baby actually grew up, lived, died, and after three days, rose again. Was resurrected. It's risky to put your faith in something like this, isn't it? But it doesn't stop there. We believe that because of that, our faith says that we can be released from all of the crappy crap that we do. It just keeps getting better, doesn't it? We have faith that that God, whose spirit is on the loose, continues to work today and is bringing all things together, is reconciling all these things into what's called the kingdom of God. That is to say, the kingdom of pure love. That is what our faith is in. Isn't that amazing? If not a little bit crazy. Have you ever had somebody kind of call you out as crazy? Or maybe taking an unnecessary risk? Some, th- some, some things that, that I can recall in my life, one of them I really want to recall because it doesn't happen anymore. But I recall these voices in my head as I'm up at Hurricane Ridge staring over a big cornice with a couple of skis on my feet, looking at the biggest place I can go and my friends going, uh, I, I think you're crazy. I don't think you should do that. Of course, you know, they would probably thought it was an unnecessary risk because they knew I wasn't that good. Or the fact that when I, after my senior year of college, I turned down a dream internship with the Seattle Mariners to go on a mission trip to the Republic of Haiti. And my dad said, you know what, I think that's a pretty poor decision. Which is dad speak for, I think you're nuts. Okay, later on, as I told friends that, hey, I, I think, I think I'm going to get married. My buddies were like, dude, DR, what are you thinking? You're crazy, dude. And then when, when I told those same people that we were going to have a little guy, I have a one-year-old son, I said, I thought that Julie and I were crazy. There's a lot of things that we do that might seem a little bit crazy, that seem like it might, might be a little too risky. But isn't this life of risk the life that we want to be living? I find myself to be far more inspired by those that are making space to take a risk than I am otherwise. What we believe is crazy. In fact, there are times that I, even now, have serious doubts about the whole thing. I found myself wondering, you know, could this all be BS? Isn't this all too good to be true? That list of things that I already said, is, is it Is it just too good to be true? Is it the equivalent of a a religious fishing story? You know, where the the fight gets longer and the fish gets bigger every time you tell tell it. Am I just being duped here? How about you? Are people telling you that you're crazy? Maybe for your faith? Maybe otherwise. Are people telling you that you're crazy for a living situation that you've chosen? Maybe they're calling you crazy because you've changed your major into something that, is, that you're going to go out and, and maybe make a lot less money, but that your vision is to make much more of an impact 
Maybe people call you crazy because you're dating somebody or not dating somebody. There are a lot of things that we do in our lives that require great risk. So the question is, what do we do with these doubts that come along with risk? What do we do with our skepticism, our doubts, our disappointments, our loneliness relative to God? I believe that what we do is engage them. And we take them head on. And that's exactly what we're going to do this quarter. We're going to be real about the ways that we are confused. About the ways we doubt. And we are going to join in with the long legacy of those throughout the history of the Christian faith that have doubted. We're going to look at stories, Old Testament and New Testament, of people that interacted with God and yet they doubted. Part of living a life of faith over certainty is doubt. And in fact, as you've heard, uh, some of you have heard quoted up here, Janie Stewart, who called us into worship as our associate director. She has quoted this great quote from uh, Anne Lamont when she says, The antithesis of faith is not doubt, but rather the antithesis of faith is certainty. And so we are on a journey to help our faith grow. We're not on a journey necessarily towards certainty, but we are on a journey towards greater faith. And so we are going to to start in by looking at some of those who were closest to Jesus and experience some of this great doubt. So what we're going to look at tonight as we begin our exploration uh, through the rest of the quarter is from Matthew chapter 28 And as we do, pay attention to what this text speaks to us about God, faith, and doubt. So, to give you the text, I I turn it over to the voice of the inn. Go ahead, Kimber. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. 
and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So you see what's happened here. Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead and a bunch of people go to the tomb trying to get their hearts and minds around what in the world has happened here and is this too good to be true? I love that in the middle part of, of this text that the, the author gives us a little bit of weight on this doubt. That middle part where they create a conspiracy theory that kind of takes the most obvious response out of play. Okay, let's devise this plan that that people will buy into that the body's gone. The author knows that this is going to be a tough sell. This is is a, a story that is very difficult to believe. So they create this thing, and the writer wants us to know that that's happened. All this happens in Jerusalem, but then the story goes back up to the northern part of Israel where they they meet up along the Sea of Galilee and we get this key verse that that tells us that they worshipped him, but some doubted. They are Jesus' closest friends, his disciples. They worshipped him and those same people, some of them, Doubted. It makes space for even those closest to doubt. These are the same guys that have watched everything happen. That have heard everything. And they are covered in doubt even as they worship. Even though they saw and heard, doubt still existed. Eventually, Jesus says, go. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all of the same things that I have taught you. And oh, one more totally mind-blowing thing. I'm going to be with you always, right up to the very end. And you disciples are going to need to remember that, because what I'm calling you to do is very, very risky. So what does this tell us about faith? What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about doubt? Three things before we sing a few more songs. First, I think that it tells us that a faith built on certainty according to proven fact is impossible. You cannot build faith on certainty. St. Augustine has a, has a great quote in saying that uh, faith or doubt is actually necessary to grow in faith because it's what keeps you seeking. So this doubt that these, these disciples had may have actually been a good thing that even though they had seen and heard everything, it would keep them seeking Jesus who said that he would be with them always, even to the end of the age. I'd like to think that if I was one of the 11 remaining disciples that heard this, I wouldn't have doubted. But I'm not positive that I wouldn't have. 
Are you someone that likes to see evidence? Do you want proof? I don't think it's uncommon for people to want to see Jesus. In fact, I think it's a really good desire. And we often sing songs as prayers in this space where we ask to see Jesus. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But remember that at least in this case, seeing did not equal this full, unfiltered believing. Some worshipped. They worshipped, but some Doubted. For some people, doubt is rooted in this, uh, this kind of intellectual doubt, where you just need more evidence, you need more proof, you need to see uh, more of why this is something that I should commit my whole life to. I need to be sure intellectually. Well, if we swing back to the other side, there are, also, there are also those that they're okay with where everything is at intellectually, but they've gone on and they've gone on and they still cannot come into contact with the reality of that last promise and the nearness of God. That God is with them always, even to the end of the age. Where are you at in that continuum? You see, doubt, as we understand how the word is used in, in biblical Greek, might be simply defined as to endlessly divide. You're, you're endlessly dividing. That, that the questions only lead to more questions that you demand get answered. One of the places that I see people endlessly dividing in our culture is, frankly, with uh, dating, romance, marriage. I see people demonstrate very little faith in this, in this matter. They crave certainty. What am I talking about? Well, think about this. And I'm actually going to ask for participation. So get ready. Listen up right now. On you, as you think about people that you would want to date, as you think about dating in general, what are some of the things that are on your top five? And you know what I'm talking about. Those things that you, that you say, well, anybody that I would date has to be dot, dot, dot. Shout them out. Short, hot. Short, hot. All right. That's good. I like that. I like the, I like the vulnerability. Okay, tall. So some like short, some like tall. We all like hot. Huh? Witty, witty, I like that. Good hygiene, I heard, out there. That's good. Well, well kept. Actually, you know, when, uh, funny is good. You know, when my... What was that? Honest? Oh, good. Virtuous. I like it. Others. Faithful, motivated, trustworthy. Short hair. Shiny hair. All right. See, what I think tends to happen, and I know that we all have our list. I know that if if you reflect on the picture that you saw earlier, that uh, the woman that eventually said yes to being my wife uh, confessed to me that when she first met me, she really didn't know what to uh, think about all that hair and the fact that as she saw me, I wasn't all that well kept. So... Lists are brutal. 
The thing is, is that I often see with dating and romance is people say, you know, I'm only, I'm only looking for somebody that's honest and trustworthy and motivated, but they also need to be uh, rich. And, uh, you know, it would be good if they had a pastoral heart and they were theologically competent and that they could challenge, this is a great one, and that they could challenge me. Well, I mean, how do you want them to challenge you? Well, I mean, I only want them to challenge me, you know, intellectually, you know, uh, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no challenge physically. (laughs) To endlessly divide means that the list just keeps growing. That there is never a satisfaction in getting all the answers that you need to commit. At the heart of what we're talking about when it comes to doubt and this whole idea of endlessly dividing is the, the fact that it keeps us from committing. We can't find all the answers. One of the best pieces of advice that my dad ever told me when I asked him, you know, and my old man's a, you know, he's a corporate guy. He's been working as a senior VP in a, in a lot of different places. And I say, Dad, how do you make decisions? And I was shocked to hear his answer because I always thought of my dad as somebody that got all the answers he was looking for. And he just said, you know what? If I can get to half of the answers that I need, I feel like I've got enough to make a decision. And to some degree, that's exactly what we're talking about. When does your quest for certainty that is proven with evidence keep you from committing? Keep you from going deeper in your faith? I think that certainty is a myth, and that building a faith on proven fact is impossible, in part when it comes to the faith, because I'm not totally sure that we know exactly what we're looking for. Do we really have a grasp of what this God revealed in Jesus might look like? I point us back to the Old Testament and these words from Isaiah 52, foretelling the Messiah that say, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, catch this, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouth because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. Did they know what they were looking for? What they have not heard, they will understand. I think what this text is telling us about the foretold Messiah is that what you are looking for and what you are going to get might be a lot different than you think. The other way to talk about this prophecy that we've just read is is to say that this Messiah, this Savior, is going to be so disfigured, it's going to be so other that you're going to be standing over it going, what is this? Is that the Jesus that we often talk about? The one that we're coming to going, what is this? This is disfigured and marred. Even in the text that we got tonight, we saw a totally different version in the Marys going to the tomb. And it it talked about his clothes being like lightning and white as snow. What is it that we are looking for anyway when we engage and confess our doubt and let go of certainty, I think we get the opportunity to have a God that is much bigger than we give, usually give God credit for. 
Second, faith and doubt necessarily go together. Being faithful to Jesus means that there is the possibility of not following Jesus. God is not in the business of forcing people to follow. Rather, God desires to be desired. If it is to be called faith, and that's what the action of being in relationship with God is called throughout the Bible, then there has to be the possibility to not follow or worship. Often where we have choices, often where we have choices also comes right behind that the great possibility to doubt. Perhaps the way that we would be most familiar with what I'm talking about is in the phenomenon that we might call buyer's remorse. You know, where you do some comparative shopping, you go and you look around, you look at different styles, you look at different prices, and then you land on a pair of jeans, and then a week later you find yourself going, did I make the right decision? Anytime there is a choice in the matter, it opens up the possibility to doubt. Eventually, we have to put our weight down and say, I've been given this choice, but I've heard these promises, and I've heard some great reasons, and I have this great hope. Well, how does our doubt in that scenario lead us to greater faith, even though there is the choice to maybe go the different direction? When we think about the text that we just read and it says that, uh, that so they worshipped but some doubted. I'm talking about faith. I'm assuming that faith is needed to worship. But I want us to make sure that we have a bigger view of what worship is. Worship isn't just singing songs like we do here at the inn and listening to some dude like me get up and talk. Worship is our lives as a living sacrifice to God. It's everything we do. It's learning. It's serving. It's all that. And when it comes to worship, one of the great heroes of the faith that I know many of us are familiar with is Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And things were, were kind of shaken up a couple of years ago when some memoirs came out that she had doubts in her faith. And in fact, in a, in a letter that she wrote to a friend, Mother Teresa said this. She said, Jesus has a very special love for you, talking to her friend. But as for me... The silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. The tongue moves but does not speak. I want you to pray for me that I let him have a free hand. I often share a similar struggle where I kick and fight to embrace that the possibility that God also loves me is true. And that I could feel that. This quote has been one that has been used by atheists as a sort of, of proof for God not existing. I would argue exactly the opposite. That what we get in Mother Teresa is somebody that stayed faithful, that kept seeking in doubt, and she did for more than 50 years in, in the slums of Calcutta. That's a dynamic life of faith, even in the midst of doubt. Worship, faith, and doubt go together. The opportunity is for your doubts to springboard you in to a new depth of faith. Third, doubt 
is not a reason to stop. There's a, I'm going to let you in on a little parable. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do it. A little parable that uh, kind of developed after somebody asked me the question, okay, church, dude, would you rather be locked in your office? And my office isn't huge. It's, you know, it's small. And the question was, would you rather be locked in your office with um, a hungry snake like giant snake, like a boa constrictor type thing, or some big old snake, or a lion, <laughs> hungry, you know. And I loathe and detest snakes, so I'm like, dude, hook me up with a lion. So, and he's like, lion. I feel like your chances go way down with that. I'm like, oh no, no, my chances do not go down with a lion. <laughs> because here's what I would do, dude. Okay, I. I would, I would kind of hang out there in my office and I'd walk around. Be like, Lion, this is the R you're messing with here. And I would look, th- I, I wouldn't take my eyes off that lion. And then I would approach that lion slowly and methodically. And I'd keep looking that lion in the eye. I'd grab his paw, lick my lips, and then I would just bite right into it. And this lion would be covered in doubt. This lion would be going, wait a minute, I thought I was the king of the jungle. And this guy's beating me in my own game. How is this possible? I'm, he, he stole my move. This guy can't steal my, but all of a sudden, this lion is just totally covered in doubt, backs down, and he's paralyzed. He can't move because he's like, who am, what happened here? What broke down? The R's beating me in my own game. Okay. Next thing, I walk out of my office satisfied and full. (laughs) Now, I know that what I've just done there is totally anthropomorphize the situation. And and I lost some people who have already checked out and said, dude, church would get worked by a lion. (laughs) But what I'm getting at here is that as I anthropomorphize, what does doubt do? Too often, it stops us dead in our tracks. That when we have doubt, we get paralyzed and we, and we, we just stop moving. In my parable with the lion, the whole goal is fill the lion with enough doubt that I know it won't react like it would be created to react. Because it's covered in doubt. Doubt is no reason to stop. Isn't it interesting to note that Jesus didn't say stop doubting, get yourself right with me and then move and then we can get on with it. But rather he says all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and finish the task. Who Jesus is trumps any doubt the disciples were experiencing. What Jesus says is your doubt does not define who I am and your doubt does not define who you are. It does not get the last word. Let's not let doubt paralyze us. In our faith or otherwise, the need for certainty can stop one dead in their tracks and keep one from commitment. Let's stop being a slave to certainty. 
So in, in all of what we're going to look at this quarter and what we've looked at tonight, I think ultimately the reflection we have comes back to risk. Are you living a life that makes space to take some great risks? Because there's a faith in a God that is with you always to the end of the age. Or do you find yourself doing everything you can to try and eliminate the risk and chase after that elusive certainty? I think we are called to a life of faith that empowers us to risk with the assurance that God is with us always. And the challenge for us is to trust God or to trust God more. We are going to look at stories this quarter that show us the legacy that we are a part of with our doubt included. Now, we're not going to talk about doubt for doubt's sake, but I believe that our doubt can lead us to greater faith And our hope is that our journey together, in our journey together, we might grow in faith over certainty as we bring our intellectual, emotional, spiritual doubts and keep moving. That we may, in the end, grow in faith that leads to greater commitment, risk, and action that the world and the church desperately, desperately need. If we do this, I think we have the possibility of gaining a much fuller view of who God really is as a compassionate redeemer that is powerful and gracious. So let's hop on board together and not seek hope in our limited selves and our own ability to find the answers, but rather find our hope in a God that has created us and asked us to go in his behalf, even in our doubts. Let's get on that journey together. Let's pray. Lord, help us out. Help us uh, to uh, bring ourselves. Help us to know your presence with us and that there is absolutely nothing in all of creation that can separate us from that presence. Lord, we pray that you would make yourself real to us as we, uh, as we come to you authentically. Lord, I, I do pray that we would, we would know your presence, know your nearness. And Lord, that you would open our, um, our hearts and minds um, to see how much bigger you are, uh, Lord, than we may have previously thought. So be with us tonight and as, as we continue together the rest of this quarter in Christ's name.